But where are you really from? But where are you really from? Hey everyone, I'm Angela Lin, and I'm Jesse Lin, and welcome back to another episode of But Where Are You Really From? Today, as you may have noticed, we have a special guest with us, Kristen Meinzer. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for coming on. So we have a lot that we want to cover with Kristen today. She's a very successful podcaster and writer, so we'll be talking a lot about that. But we're also going to be talking about something that we've been wanting to discuss on the show for quite a while now, which is the adoptee experience, specifically the Korean adoptee experience, because I think that's something kind of special in the U.S., which... I'm not sure a lot of people know about if you don't know somebody who has that experience. We personally didn't know too much about it until one of our listeners kind of reached out and was like, hey, this is my perspective. And so when I'm listening to your show, this is kind of the angle we're coming from. So we've been wanting to cover it for a while. And we're so lucky to have you on to share your experience firsthand. So thank you so much again for for coming on. So before we get started, definitely want to give you a chance to cover our signature guest question. But where are you really from? And of course, own this the way you want to own it. I am from Minnesota. And it's something that gets pointed out a lot by my listeners. I've hosted about a dozen podcasts at this point, ones for big brands like CNN and the New York Times, as well as small indie ones and so on. And people call and write in with almost every show I host and say, listen to how she talks. She doesn't sound like a real NPR host. She sounds so wholesome and she sounds like she's fresh off the planes and oh gosh there. She says a lot of things like you betcha and real good there. And and where'd you get this girl from? She doesn't sound so sophisticated, does she now? No, no, she doesn't. I always laugh at that. And I think that it speaks to the fact that we have a lot of people on the coast who dominate the media spaces of all sorts. And those are the voices we're used to hearing. And those coincidentally are the voices that I think are most represented with Asian Americans, even though in Minnesota, there are many, many, many Asians in Minnesota. I grew up with Hmong friends and neighbors and Vietnamese ones and Korean adoptees left and right. Over 200,000 Korean adoptees around the time I was adopted went all over the world. And I believe if I'm not mistaken, 10% of them ended up in Minnesota. Wow, that's a huge proportion. Yes. <laughs> Minnesotans love adopting and love sponsoring refugees. I grew up knowing so many adopted people. And then I left Minnesota and I moved to New York after college. And I was like, wow, I don't know if I know a single adoptee out here. This is a very different social situation out here. That's super interesting because I feel like most people, when they think about Midwest versus somewhere like New York, they think the opposite in that New York is like super diverse and you can find anyone from anywhere. But then Minnesota or somewhere in the Midwest, if they've never been there, they'd be like, oh, just like country and white people and no no diversity. So it's actually really interesting to hear that you grew up with a very multicultural community and then had a reverse culture shock when you went to New York? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm not going to say my school in particular was super diverse that I went to. I mostly went to a suburban school. But, you know, once I went off to college, very much so, I went to the University of Minnesota. Yeah, it absolutely was a part of my life that Asian American there meant a lot of different things that it has not necessarily meant here in New York. 
Well, as you've mentioned and as we've mentioned, you have had quite a successful and multi-year podcasting career, amongst other things. But how did you first get into podcasting and how has that kind of evolved from when you first started to now? Oh, I got dragged into it kicking and screaming. I had no plans whatsoever to host a podcast. I didn't even really know what a podcast was when I started hosting one. I was working at WNYC, which is the New York flagship public radio station, and they make a lot of podcasts that are, you know, distributed all over the world, like Radio Lab and Death, Sex, and Money and shows that you've probably heard of. But I was working there as a culture critic and producer on a live daily news show that was being made there. And the film critic whose segments I used to produce said to me after I'd been working there a few months, hey, I've always wanted to host a podcast. And I said, hey, I'll produce it for you. And we went to the higher ups and the higher ups are like, yeah, you can make this show. We'll make it one of our online products. We're trying to be hip. We're trying to do this podcasting thing. And we made a pilot me producing, him hosting. And then the higher ups heard it and they said, this is terrible. The thing that would make it better is if Kristen was a co-host, because we've heard you, Kristen, disagree with you know, the film critic. And we think it's funny whenever we hear you two talk in the hallways and so on. So why don't you just record yourselves doing that? And that was about 15 years ago. And that podcast was approximately... Uh, for six years it was running and hundreds and hundreds of episodes. It was a weekly show. So um, yeah, I got dragged into it. Like I said, I just wanted to be behind the scenes, but I have now been podcasting ever since and now I love it. I think it's really funny the comment that you, you said your managers or bosses made about having two people, like the camaraderie on the show. I feel like everyone that we've talked to that's what they come to the podcast for. And like, that's what I listen to the podcast for. Mostly it's the relationship between the hosts. I think it's like really hard to captivate an audience when, or you have to try much harder when you're just by yourself. Oh, it's so much more work. I have solo hosted a few shows now and I give so much credit to the producers behind the scenes who cut me together and make me sound snappy and make me sound exciting, who write the scripts and get the best guests and so on to make things sound better. But solo hosting a show is no joke. It's it's real work. And I think shows for the most part, if you can, if you're an aspiring podcaster, I always encourage people to consider having a co-host. It's it's fun. It's better for the listeners oftentimes, and it makes it feel a little bit more intimate than just a person lecturing you or monologuing. Yeah, that's what stood out to me when you described how you started is that they said they overheard you guys talking in the hallway and it feels like that little intimate space would be fun if it were broadcast. Because that's what we talk about all the time too is when it comes to podcasts, in general, our hypothesis is that people like it because it sounds like you've like stumbled into someone's private conversation that you just have this like little privy to. So it's fun because it's not the same as watching a more polished scripted thing or a radio thing thing or a news thing because it's just like someone being themselves and you happen to get to listen to it. Yeah. And in the case of a show like yours, the two of you are talking about things that aren't necessarily going to be part of mainstream broadcasting. Maybe the powers that be aren't going to be asking the questions you are or having the insights that you two do. So that's something else I love about podcasting is that it's a way to kind of bypass all of the gatekeepers that have always been there and put the rest of our voices out there. After doing podcasting for so many years as you have, what keeps your creative juices flowing? Where do the ideas come from? 
oh my gosh, they come from everywhere. I'll look at the latest headlines. I'll be playing a video game. I'll be talking with a stranger. I'll be walking up and down the aisles of a grocery store. There's so much interesting stuff in the world. And the way I see it is as long as it's something that I'm obsessed with, it's something that I will enjoy talking about and I'll enjoy making a show about and people will enjoy listening to. Something that I always advise people is if it doesn't obsess you, if it's not exciting to you, if it's not something that you're already talking about in your spare time, don't make a podcast about it because a podcast is so much work. I don't think anybody tells newbies like how much work it is. If you want your podcast to actually sound decent, if you want it to not just sound like a stream of conscious rambling and uh, you want the audio quality to be okay, if you want it to come out on a regular schedule, if you want all of those things to happen, it's work. So make it something that you're already excited about. I, I guess I count myself lucky because I'm excited about lots of things, especially things that have to do with pop culture, identity, feminism, gender, race, class, all, all of those different things and how they intersect in what we watch, what we read, how we live and so on. When we first started, obviously we were learning everything along the way, but I remember a friend of mine, I was telling her like, yeah, it's actually, it's a lot of work to put this thing out. And she's like, really? Oh, I thought you just like threw this thing up on the internet and that's like it. <laughs> I was like, that's cute, but no. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of folks before they do it, just think like, oh, it's not hard. I just hit a record button and then I push another button and it's in the universe, right? No, it's not. <laughs> like look at the three of us right now, all connecting from different locations in different time zones and so on. Just logistically, that alone is something to deal with. Totally. I totally agree on the, if you don't love talking about it, you can't make a show about it. So I love that piece of advice that you gave. You've also written a book about how to start a podcast amongst other things as well. So when did you get into writing and how does that kind of intersect with your other career elements that you've already played on? Wow. From the time I was a very young child, I actually thought, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a novelist. I wrote poetry. Some of it was published. I have an MFA in fiction writing. I thought I was going to be a writer. The thing is, though, when I was getting my MFA, I realized writing is kind of miserable. It's kind of lonely. Sitting by myself with my keyboard for hours on end, it's hard. It's really hard. And it's not quite my personality because I love talking with people. And it is a wonder that I've written three books so far because I'm like, I don't know how somebody with my personality managed to do this without falling into a deep, destructive state of depression where I was just drinking or something, you know, because I'm like, this is so lonely. How do people do this all the time? But I have realized that I get to still do storytelling and podcasting. And a lot of the podcasts I write have story really, really essential to them, uh, narrative arcs and so on, character building and so on even if the character is just another side of myself. And so I really love the storytelling that comes through in podcasting. And there was a point in my life where when I was younger, I thought, oh no, I'm never going to be a true writer with a capital W. I'm not going to write literature with a capital L. And I kind of let that go because I think that there's room for every kind of storytelling out there, whether the storytelling is people making TikTok videos or people who are writing Pulitzer Prize winning novels. There's room for all kinds of storytelling. And the kind of storytelling I do through podcasting, let's be real, reaches way more people than any novel I would write. You know, some of my podcasts have tens of millions of listens. And I don't know if I would write a novel that would have tens of millions of volumes that were bought. Not to put myself down, but that's a lot of books to sell. I'd have to be like Prince Harry to sell that many books, right? That is true. 
I love that you've expanded the definition of what storytelling can be because I, I have felt like things like TikTok and generally the internet has enabled everyone who wants to have a voice to put it out there and someone will listen if not many, many people. So it's it's really cool the, the age that we're in right now. I say thank goodness for that because as I already mentioned, the gatekeepers in another life, I worked in TV and I was told at one point that I was not somebody that was appropriate for camera. I wasn't pretty enough to be on camera. And it's so funny because now after years of podcasting, I'm on TV all the time. <laughs> because of my podcast, people ask to interview me on TV. I'm on CNN. I'm on the BBC. I'm on all of these outlets with regularity now. And that's because all of these alternate forms of media, you know, YouTube, podcasting, TikTok, and so on, they've given a platform to those of us who wouldn't have one before and suddenly our voices matter and suddenly we should be on prime time. And I'm so grateful for that. It's not the case that only the powers that be should be the ones who decide what stories matter and decide what people are the most important in the world. And the rest of us, we matter too. So I'm really grateful for that. We love that. You are so inspirational. Obviously, we have our podcast, so we hope to reach your level of tens of millions of listens for episode two. <laughs> you will. But in the meantime, I also just want to tell you that even if you're only reaching a handful of listeners, you're making a difference in their lives. They are choosing to tune in. This is not something where they're just flipping channels on TV like back in the 1980s and come across you and there's only six channels and they're stuck watching you. People are seeking you out and listening to you. So even if just a handful are choosing you, they chose you. So you're making a difference in their lives. You're speaking to something that matters to them. So I always want to just make clear tens of millions of listens is not really the goal. It's are you touching somebody's life and are you making them feel like they matter? And you're doing it all the time because you're asking the questions you're asking and talking to the people you're talking to. Wow. I didn't know we were going to have an interview and therapy. I know, we were going to cry for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck all podcasters out there and everyone making content, really. It, it is true. If you reach one person, it already makes a big difference to that person. So keep going. All right, let's make a pivot because I'm very, very interested in getting to this topic and learning from you because we have so much we don't know about the adoptee experience. So first, I thought it would be helpful if we defined or at least slightly touched on what exactly is transnational or transracial adoption because I had never heard that term, honestly, until like one of our listeners reached out about it. So transracial, more often than not, it is a white family that is adopting a non-white child. And that non-white child could be, you know, in the case of your show, mostly Asian people, but transracial adoption can be any race as long as the race of the parents is different from the race of the child that they are adopting. In the case of Korean adoptees, after the Korean War ended, there were many war orphans, and then some of the orphans were the result of relationships, I can't say if they were all consensual or not, between soldiers and local Korean women. And some of the orphans in the following few decades ended up being adopted through an organization. I believe Holt was the first big one. Holt spearheaded and became the largest international Korean to outside Korea adoption agency. And as I said earlier, well over 200,000 Korean adoptees have 
since been uh, adopted into families around the world, most of them to the U.S., and of those, approximately 10% to Minnesota. If the stats I have are still up to date, they might not be. Full disclosure, I don't know for sure if that's still the case. And in the case of Minnesota, a lot of those adoptees were being, at least in my era in the 70s, essentially just being shipped over on airplanes. And then later on, the parents would go over to meet their child, oftentimes go to the orphanage and meet their child and bring their child back themselves. But in the 70s, when I was adopted, the cost of international travel, the frequency with which international flights happened and so on really necessitated that mostly they would just put a whole bunch of babies on a plane with a couple of chaperones. And then my parents met me at the airport and my older sister, they adopted my older sister first, who's also Korean. They had her and they were like, let's get another. So a couple of years later, they got me and they were part of a little group of kind of a support group of other parents who had children adopted from Korea. So that's the story of Korean adoption in Minnesota. And, you know, obviously there have been many other kinds of transracial adoption and transnational adoption in the U.S. that have um, gone through periods of popularity and deep scrutiny. Chinese to U.S. adoptions, Eastern European, that's transnational, not transracial usually, Guatemalan and so on. But transracial and transnational adoption, just to make clear, are not always the same things. Sometimes white people are adopting white babies from other countries. That's transnational, not transracial. Somebody like me who was adopted by white parents, that is transracial and transnational. My family has other adoptees in it, and some of the adoptees are white. And so that is uh, just uh, same race adoption as opposed to transracial adoption. Hey, listeners, wondering how you can support us? The biggest way is by increasing our visibility by following us on Instagram at Where Are You From Pod, on TikTok at But Where Are You Really From, subscribing to our YouTube channel under But Where Are You Really From Podcast, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and telling your friends. The more people we can get to listen to the show, the more we can continue spotlighting different perspectives and stories. And if you feel so inclined, we're also accepting donations at buymeacoffee.com slash where are you from. Thanks, y'all. <laughs> I frequently leave off the word adoptive parent because I personally and most adoptees hate this. Uh, a question we hear a lot is, who are your real parents? And how do you feel about your adoptive parents? My adoptive parents are my real parents. Those are my biological parents over there. Does that make sense? Yes. So when I say real parents, I mean the ones who raised me. And then when I say biological parents, I mean something else. But there's been a lot of scrutiny about Korea and international adoption. And I forgot what year it was. I think it was the late 80s, early 90s. The Summer Olympics were in Korea. And suddenly there was a lot of questions about what's going on with this whole adoption thing? Do they have a baby mill happening that the Korean government's overseeing? What's happening here? And then there was a big halt to the adoptions because they were exporting thousands and thousands and thousands of children a year. And suddenly they were like, oh no, we're being scrutinized for this. Because the government was essentially making money every time they exported a child. They weren't having to take care of their own people in any way whatsoever. When you get rid of the poor problem people, a country can thrive in lots of ways, right? Think about all the cities in America that try to just export all the unhoused people, right? It's a great way for the city to just get rid of them. They're unsightly. We can save some money here. And uh, there was a researcher, I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting her name. She was an anthropologist at NYU back when I was in grad school there. 
her whole theory was essentially the way Korea became a first world country was by exporting all of the babies they didn't want. It's interesting, though, because later on, it happened that Korea, this was maybe 10 or 15 years ago, they had a campaign targeting adoptees like me saying, come back to your motherland. You can work here. We are looking for people with college degrees, master's degrees, and PhDs to come work here in certain fields and, you know, essentially work, pay a lot of taxes, help boost up the government again a second time, just as we did by being exported as babies. So there were certain Korean adoptees who definitely did it for the experience. And there were other ones who, like me, were like, that seems a little bit icky. And as I say all this, I just want to make clear, it's not like I think America's 100% always doing things right either. It's not like me saying, yay, America, bad Korea. America, here in the U.S., there's a lot of stuff to scrutinize too. So I just want to make that very clear. Totally. And it's really helpful to hear your perspective because I did look up a few of the kind of key milestones of how the government approached fixing, quote unquote, the the child exportation problem. And when I read that they were offering dual citizenship to adoptees, that it it was in 2011 that they passed a law that made it like easier for adoptees to reclaim their Korean citizenship. I didn't read the fine print about, oh, mostly if you're like super highly educated. And a high earner. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't read the real intent in that law when I saw that milestone. So it's interesting to hear from your perspective. Related to that, I'm curious because there's a difference between a country's government and things you may or may not agree with and the country's culture or like how you feel about that place or where you grew up or the traditions. So when it comes to Korea, I'm sure it's a very sticky subject, but how do you view things? Because you are Korean, you didn't grow up there. I don't know how much of the culture you've actively tried to reclaim and if the government and anything that they're doing has persuaded you or dissuaded you from doing such things. So I'm just curious how you feel towards reclaiming the culture with the context of government, I guess, also in mind. Yeah, I'll just mention my sister here too. As I said, my older sister is also adopted from Korea and she is very curious about her origin story. She hired a searcher at one point in Korea to try and track down more information. She appeared on a reality show in Korea to try and find her biological family. All of it was fruitless. And I told her at some point, I know you want to go back there yourself. Because when she was on the TV show, it was all by Zoom. But I know at some point she would like to go back there. She would like to see the orphanage where she was. She would like to learn more about the culture. And I said, I will absolutely go with you. I'll support you 100%. I'll probably learn things that I'll appreciate too. But I don't feel the same draw to Korea that she does. She feels it more. So the reason I bring up my sister is I don't think either of us is more representative of a Korean adoptee than the other. I think both of us are very common perspectives where it's like, I was brought here when I was a baby. I don't have any memories other than here. And likewise with my sister. And yet I know what I look like. I know how I'm treated in the world. And I know that so much of my identity is what I look like and how I'm treated because of what I look like. And that absolutely makes me Asian and it makes me Korean. And so even if I don't feel necessarily like I remember anything from Korea or I feel drawn to it like my sister Of course, Korea is still part of who I am, right? 
So yeah, I do plan on at some point going with my sister when her kids are old enough to be interested. At this point, they're teenagers and they do not care. But maybe when they're like in their 20s, they'll have more interest in like finding out more about that half of their identity or their mom's identity, I should say. It's not really their identity. Their mom is Asian American. Their mom is not, as they see it, Korean, you know? So it's really more about my sister wanting to learn more about that and me going to support her. But again, I might be really surprised. I might be there and feel a deep connection with things I just haven't thought about before. Who knows what'll happen when we finally make that trip over there. As far as connecting with Korean stuff or Korean culture, I think I kind of consume those things on the same level that all humans in America do in 2023. Like, of course I loved Parasite. Of course I love Squid Game. Who doesn't love gochujang on kimbap and who doesn't love spicy tofu with kimchi? I mean, I love a Korean face mask, you know? So my connection with Korea at this point, I almost feel isn't that different from my friends who are not Korean and their connection. with Like my friends of other Asian, white, black, Latino races seem to like all of those things at the same level that I do. <laughs> So I don't know if the connection I feel is necessarily any better or worse than theirs. But I will say this. I do like seeing movies and TV shows where people look a little bit like me and it's just the norm. One thing I really loved about Parasite was the main characters, you know, the working class family. They were really careful about the casting to have them not look like gangnam style plastic surgery sort of face people you know and i loved that i'm like oh these are people who just kind of look like korean before surgery you know korean like me um so i enjoy seeing that but i will say i like it even more when i see asian americans because i identify as asian american i don't identify as korean exactly i i am born in korea but because culturally I'm so separate from it and because how I was raised was so separate, what I really love to see is a TV show like Beef, which is on Netflix right now. And it's like, oh, these are Asian Americans. These are my people. These are Asians who live in the U.S. and use the same language as me and have the same cultural context I do. Yeah, that's something we talk about a lot, actually, is the, the difference between Asian Americans and Asians from Asia. Yes, and it's a conversation that comes up a lot on social media because when we talk about like quote unquote Asian things, sometimes there's controversy because the Asians in Asia are like, you're not even Asian. How can you talk about that? I'm like, that's cute. But I am. Not the same way, but I am. <laughs> yes. It's a different identity. We're, we're always, all three of us, we're, we're going to be Asian, even if people in Asia don't see us as Asian. <laughs> we are. We just are. Look at us. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Okay, because you mentioned that in Minnesota, there were so many other folks as well that were adoptees from different communities as well, not just Korean. One of the questions we originally had was around how much did your parents try to, I guess, teach you about Korean culture? And if not at all, did you see any other friends around you whose parents approached that a little bit differently? My parents, when I was very young, 
sent me to a day camp, a Korean culture day camp that was specifically for adoptees. And then when I was in middle school, I also at one point did a sleepaway camp that was a Korean culture sleepaway camp for Korean adoptees. And that middle school period, that's a tough time because that's also when most kids, part of the developmental phase is like, how do I fit in? How do I not look weird? How do I not stand out? Oh gosh, I'm one of the only Korean adoptees in my school. And now I'm going off to a special camp to only be with other, you know, Korean adoptees. And the discomfort of walking into a space where so many people had similar physical traits to me, but I wasn't used to being in an auditorium with 200 other kids who look like me and how disconcerting that was at the time and not necessarily comfortable for me. It didn't make me feel safe or like I fit in because it was so foreign to what I was used to. I'm not sure foreign is even the right word because I don't mean to make it sound like the other kids there were foreigners. What I mean is just at that age, at least. I am used to being in spaces that are almost always three-fourths white. And then to walk into a space where it was not, it was exactly like 99% not white. And uh, yeah, so it wasn't one of those things where it was like, oh, homecoming. It was like, oh my God, what is this saying about me that I don't feel comfortable here? What is it saying about our world? What is it saying about who is represented, what I see on TV? This is sad. and. I felt uncomfortable and then I felt ashamed for being uncomfortable. Did you feel more like you belonged with that 75% of the people that you normally see versus this group of people that look more like you? Yeah, I mean, because that's the world that I grew up in. That was my family. My family is, you know, 75% white. Um, That was the school system I was in, the church I went to. Even though I have other family members who are adopted, most of those adoptees were white and not Asian. I have one Asian adopted cousin. My sister is Asian and adopted. My Nana was adopted. That's my mom's mom, but by white people, but not technically even adopted. She was fostered. Um, So we have a lot of foster and adoption in my family, but not a lot of it is transracial. So what is the space that I was used to seeing? What was the space I was used to occupying? Yeah, it usually was at least 75% white. That's so interesting because I feel like a lot of times our conversation is quite opposite to that, where we grew up in a city where there was a good Asian population. So I think we felt comfortable amongst other Asian folks. But then there was the othering that came from the non-Asian folks and obviously like the continued media representation of like an only certain aesthetic kind of desire for Caucasianness or whiteness. Mm-hmm. Yes. At what point in your life did that shift where you did start feeling more comfortable around areas where you weren't essentially the only (laughs) looking person? (laughs) Well, I think it started a little bit uh, in high school. My mother and stepdad for a time, because of a job, we had to all transfer from Minnesota to Colorado. I lived in Littleton. And my nearest school, I believe, was Columbine High School. But because of the busing system that was in place at the time... They had kids who were in the suburbs go to the, quote, inner city school and vice versa. So I actually got bussed into the, quote, inner city school, which was less than half white. And I remember showing up at that school and kind of having an almost similar feeling as I did the first day I got to that Korean adoptee sleepaway camp. And it it took me a little while to get my footing, but it was so good for me. And then within a few months, I had my friends, my diverse friends, my best friend 
was Asian there. And then my, you know, three other best friends were Latino there. And then I was just like, this is great. I love it. And once I totally fell in love with it and had my whole life set up there, my family got transferred again. And so (laughs) we had to move. But that was really, really good for me. Good for me feeling more comfortable with myself, developing a more diverse set of experiences, having friends who had just, you know, different world experiences than me. And that continued through college. So yeah, it, it, it definitely continued. And what are some other like, let's say salient or top of mind challenges you feel like were unique for yourself as a person that's a Korean adoptee at the time? Well, I think one of the challenges is on top of constantly getting the where are you really from question, the who are your real parents question, and those things constantly intermingling. And then growing up in a lot of white spaces where the way to raise children who were transracially or transnationally adopted when I was a kid has changed a lot. But when I was a kid, it was just treat them like they're white, tell them they're just as good as white, be colorblind. And I think we do better now. We don't use white as the standard against all other things that should be measured. We don't try to be colorblind, hopefully, the way we did back in the 70s and 80s and 90s. But I I think that because of that, I don't know if my parents were really forced to think as much as they should have thought about race. In some ways, they just tried to pretend it wasn't there, you know, because it was more comfortable. And I think part of that is the transracial adoption thing of the era. But I think part of it also was in Minnesota, uh, at least when I was growing up there, white people didn't want to talk about race. Maybe that's just white people in general in America up until five years ago. I don't know. (laughs) But um, I will say this. In New York, I hear people talk about race more than uh, they did in Minnesota when I was growing up there. And again, I don't know how much of that is the time period and how much of that is the city. But I also sometimes hear people in New York talk about race when I wish they wouldn't, where it's like, I would tell a story and be like, yeah, so this guy in the subway did this. And then this woman on the subway did this. But in New York, people will be like, yeah, so this Mexican guy in the subway did this. And then this Asian woman on the subway did this. And I'm like, what is the point of you bringing up their race? I do not understand. In Minnesota, they would not bring up the race because it's not relevant to the story. I don't understand why in New York, everybody talks about race to that extent as much as they do here. I'm not saying everyone in New York does this, but that was definitely a cultural shift for me to hear race constantly being used as a descriptor. And in Minnesota, that would have been considered rude. You'd say, yeah, the guy in the blue shirt and then the person in the hat said this, you know. The middle America politeness would kick in. Yes, because Minnesota culture, at least you don't want to otherize anybody. But part of the problem of that is like, I'm, I'm all for not otherizing people, but I'm also on the flip side, not for being colorblind either. So it can go too far. So if we did have, let's say, a couple listening in and they're interested in doing a transracial adoption, what advice would you give them in terms of being able to acknowledge their child's race but not going too far? I would say make sure that you have friends of the race that you are adopting. You know, my parents didn't really know other Asian people really, when they adopted my sister and then me. Like I said, they did try to join organizations where there were other parents and Korean adoptees. They tried to send us to these day camps and so on. But we should have also just have seen other Asian adults around. The only Asian person I remember ever seeing on TV was Connie Chung with the news or that ancient Chinese secret Calgon laundry commercial 
which was on TV all the time in the 70s and 80s. And that's about it. So it, it would have been nice to have had them have Asian friends. One thing that I really adored about a friend of mine who died a few years ago, um, her name's Ellie, and she was half Korean and half white. And she became a mentor and a friend to Korean adoptees because she said, I know what it's like to have your foot in two worlds. And she went out there and she sought out friendships with international adoptee families and said, hey, white people, you need some Asian people in your circle. You need some other Koreans, you know? And so she would, you know, make an effort to be that presence. But I, I would also say it's like, white parents, you can't just sit around and wait for someone like my friend Ellie to enter your life. You got to make an effort too, please. You're not always going to be so lucky to have an Ellie enter your life and offer to do this. Please join some organizations, do what you can to befriend certain people. And it certainly crossed my mind before, what could I do to be a little bit more like Ellie was? And I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what that would be. We talk a lot about Asian American things or Asian culture things, but a lot of times we talk about things that are not Asian at all. But we we talk about that because we are Asian American, just our perspective is shaped by that experience. So sometimes when we weigh in on things that are not Asian at all, still our upbringing or experiences kind of funnel into what we think about said thing. So I totally agree. The idea of just having friends or people in your life that are Asian or of the same race as the child that you're going to adopt makes a big difference even if they're not there teaching them the language or teaching them how to cook the thing. It's like just their presence makes a difference because it's the way that they grew up, it's the way that they think, like all these little things trickle in and are absorbed by, especially kids, they literally absorb everything. Yeah, and it's important to have people who look like us in our universe. An adopted child will probably never meet anybody who looks like them unless they procreate themselves. My sister, as I said, has two children. And one of the first things she said when she had her daughter was, she looks like me. She looks like me. I just met somebody who looks like me. Most adoptees will never meet anybody who looks like them unless they procreate. And for transracial adoptees, it's even more so because so many transracial adoptees are brought into families that just don't have anybody in their circle of friends who is the same race as their child. So yeah, it's important for us to see people who look like us, just like it's important to hear stories of people like us, like your show. Well, I think that's a really lovely transition into our close. You mentioned your friend Ellie. I'm curious if you have any other resources or groups that you know of that would be helpful for other, let's not say just Korean, but any transracial adoptee that's kind of navigating their search for like reconciling their identities, finding out more maybe about their culture or more just about how to reconcile these different parts of themselves. Do you know any other groups that might be good for them or resources that might be good for them to look into? There was one group that Ellie worked with and I'm totally forgetting the name of it, but there are lots of groups like that. I would say you're not alone out there if you are looking to talk with other people more about your adoption experience, to connect with other adoptees. And then also I would just urge you to remember that there's no one right or wrong way to interpret your own international adoption. Like I said earlier, there are people like my sister who are like, I need to find this thing. This is who I am. And there are people like me who are like, okay. And then there are people totally in between. And so 
I would urge folks not to invalidate their own story or think that their emotional or psychological experiences are not the right ones. There's not a right or a wrong one, just like there's not a right or a wrong way to interpret growing up in Cincinnati. You know, there's not a right or wrong way to interpret being gay. There are so many different experiences that we all have that are going to make us feel different ways about different things. And and that's totally fine. It's okay. Yay. Well, Kristen, we're coming up on the end of this show. We know that you have so many exciting projects that you're working on. Is there one or a couple that are timely that you want to divert our listeners to to check out that you're working on? Yeah, I have a show called How to Be Fine that my friend Jolenta and I, we have a great deal of interest in the world of wellness and self-help. We used to host a show called By the Book, where we lived by the rules of self-help books and recorded ourselves. It was a reality audio show, and you could hear how each self-help book destroyed our lives. And um, our new show, though, is a spinoff of that, and it's called How to Be Fine. Just We wrote a book also called How to Be Fine. And in How to Be Fine, rather than forcing ourselves to be the guinea pigs anymore, because we did that for 10 seasons and it was kind of exhausting. Now we just dive into all sorts of wellness topics, not just self-help books, ice baths, cults, the all beef diet. Uh, We go in a lot of different directions and we're not as helmed in as we were with self-help books. So yeah, take a listen here about what we're talking about in the world of betterment and what myths we're trying to dispel and how we're trying to encourage listeners just to embrace. It's okay. You don't need to be the best, the most productive. You don't have to be perfect. We're just cheering for everyone to be fine. And that's the point of our show. That's awesome. I love cults. So I'll be listening to your cult episode. (laughs) Oh, yes. Take a listen. Yes. Love it. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I think we learned a lot from you um, in so many different ways. So we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. Listeners, if you have questions for Kristen or feedback or your own experience related to anything we talked about, write us in or comment on social media wherever you're currently watching this. And come back next week because we will have our last episode of this batch. And until next time, Sai Jin, bitches. bitches.